to Inside the Helix, a podcast presentation from DNA Genetics. Throughout this series, we focus on all things that matter to the pork industry. You'll hear from our award-winning team of geneticists, veterinarians, animal care providers, nutritionists, and other industry-leading experts. We'll explore pig production from genetic improvement all the way to meat quality. Listen along as we take a deep dive inside the DNA Helix. Today, we're finally at the fifth pillar of DNA's five pillars of reproductive care. We've already discussed guilt development, estrus detection, body condition management, and first 48-hour pig care. Today, we'll be looking at sow farrowing with Dr. Jason Schneider. Dr. Schneider is a technical consultant on DNA Genetics Technical Services team. Jason, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Curtis. Thanks for having me. Now, Jason, you were on an episode that we did way back when. I want to say earlier this spring, we talked about feed biosecurity. You interact with producers on a regular basis. What are kind of the hot button or the big issues that producers are looking at now? Yeah, well, obviously, being a nutrition background, a nutritionist, a lot of questions I have are around nutrient requirements and so forth in diet costs, where can I cut costs, what products are my opinions uh, are based on what will help me save some money, you know, what will increase feed efficiency, and overall, how can I just feed our pig better? Now, Jason, as I said in the beginning, we're going to be discussing sow farrowing today. So let's kick things off. First of all, help us get a better understanding of the DNA sow lines. What are we looking at in regards to, let's start with gestation length. Yeah, that's a good question, Curtis. So when we look at the sow, the DNA line 241 sow, the gestation length uh, is typically 116 and a half days. And that's for our commercial sow. So when we look at our purebred animals as well, our line 200 Yorkshire is typically shorter than that with the line 400 land race a little bit longer than that 116 and a half days. So when should producers start thinking about inducing these sows to farrow? Yeah, anytime we talk about inducing sows, Curtis, we want to make sure, be careful that we're not overusing that and abusing that process, make sure it's more of a tool instead of a crutch for us. So we want to make sure that the sows, as much as possible, will farrow and start farrowing naturally. Uh, and we want to make sure that induction, if it happens, doesn't start too early. So with being a having a gestation length of 116 and a half days, if you're a new producer using uh, our maternal line genetics, that might be different than what you've been using in the past. We want to make sure that we're not inducing too early and make sure it's not before 116 days. What about too late on that clip side of that? Can we get too late and when do we start getting too late? And maybe what are some of the the repercussions of, of inducing too late. Yeah, so some of the things that we say as the gestation length goes past 118 days that you can have an increase in stillbirth. So once we get up to that point, if anything's going to go over 118 days or we need to clean out a room and we're past that 116 and a half days, I think it's okay to start inducing. Let's move to feeding rates and maybe let's start with those rates pre-farrow. How much should we be feeding these sows pre-farrow? Yeah, typically when we, well, start to start off, we want our sows to come into farrowing in a lean athletic body condition, an ideal body condition. So when we look at that from that standpoint, we want to try to target at six pounds of minimum feed intake per day. And some producers could actually do more, especially if they're in a lean athletic body condition. Now, is this all at once or is this several intervals throughout the day? Yeah, historically, a lot of producers would just feed once a day pre-farrowing just for maximized labor efficiency. But as we've seen, there's been some recent research, mainly by Peter Thiel in, in Denmark, that uh, shown that if we can feed more times throughout the day, the same amount of 
pounds of feed, but feed that more often throughout the day to try and target a last meal within about three hours or so, three to six hours of when that, before that sow starts farrowing, we're able to reduce that farrowing interval quite significantly. <clears throat> so what we've tried to talk with producers is, is, you know, if you can alter that feeding interval, uh, pre-farrowing three to four times a day and actually get, uh, you know, a feeding at when you come in at six o'clock in the morning, maybe one at noon, and hopefully you can, you can come have someone come in and, and feed like a four to six o'clock, even up to eight o'clock at night. And that should cover, you know, most of your basis and get a last meal into those sows within six hours when they start farrowing. Any recommendations on maybe some additional ad lib feeding or anything like that? Well, there's been a lot of ad lib feeders uh, being installed, especially in new construction sow farms. And there's some producers that will just automatically turn those on to save on, on labor. Uh, and I'm okay with that as long as you have sows in a correct body condition. So what we've seen with some other research, uh, especially from Kansas State, is you may actually have a detrimental effect on farrowing process if your sows or, or gilts come in over condition and then you turn them on to ad lib feeding or you start that too early, too many days pre-farrow. Now let's look at post-farrowing care. What feeding rates and recommendations do you have in this scenario? Yeah, so when we look at post-farrowing, the, the best thing we can do for these sows and for the litter and litter growth is to get as much feed on these sows as possible. So we want them to be at ad libitum feed by day two, day three at the latest post-farrowing. So we're going to try and do everything that we can to maximize feed intake. We want to make sure that sows are, are comfortable and eating right away. You know, if they're not, if a sow's not eating, we want to tempt them, check them, definitely make sure if we have any retained placenta, retained pig, treat them appropriately. But really all sows should be maximizing their feed intake by day two or three post-farrowing. Assuming a producer will be wanting to get these sows up and moving, maybe how often should they be doing this and what benefits are there to getting their, their sows a bit active? Yeah. So as you get, as you work those sows throughout their lactation period, getting them up does encourage them to have a bowel movement, to urinate, and that just clears out their GI tract and, and encourage them to, to consume more feed as well as to, to drink some more water, which is very important to producing milk. So I think the more we can do that, actively manage these sows to make sure they're getting up, the better. Let's look at the birthing process now. How much, if any, assistance should we provide for the mothers? Yeah, as the sows start to be actively in feral, we want to make sure that we're checking them out every 30 minutes or, or roughly so, just to make sure that they're progressing naturally and, and there's nothing that's going wrong within the birthing process. So, you know, if you're not getting, if these sows are not progressing every 30 minutes, then we need to really start thinking about doing some interventions with them. I think it's the the primary goal of any livestock producer to keep their livestock as comfortable as possible, and, and pig production is no different. Farrowing can be a stressful time, and I know temperatures are important. We're currently in the winter months here in January, and it's a bit colder outside. What should we be looking at in our farrowing rooms, and what temperatures should should we set those at? Yeah, so our opinion of, is when we're looking at farrowing room temperature is we're going to set a temperature that's going to make the piglet comfortable. Uh, I know there's a lot of uh, producers that are worried about if we keep the room too warm that it's going to reduce sow feed intake. But at the same time, we still have to imagine or understand that these piglets are born with very little body fat and it needs, they need a lot of outside energy to bring up their core body temperature. And that's going to help them become more viable and, and actually start nursing sooner. So 
In the wintertime, we try to target a, a 76 to 78 degrees Fahrenheit curve. And we really want to keep at that temperature to all the sows feral throughout the room. And then we're going to reduce that over time. Yeah, and our podcast episodes are all archived. So let's say producers will be listening to this in the summer months. What about during the summertime? Do we adjust that at all? Or is that, that yeah, so thing? summertime, it's a little bit different because we're, we're fighting the heat and humidity. So we're actually trying to move more air and cool those rooms down because we don't have to worry about the heat and keeping them warm. So in the summertime, we're really going to try and target that 74 to 76 degrees temperatures just to move air and uh, the humidity out as much as possible. And once temperatures are set, then basically just keep that, that set until every mother has farrowed? No, we're going to set a, a temperature curve within that farrowing room. Once those sows or once the last sows farrowed, uh, we're, that's where we're going to adjust it because we want to keep our rooms tight as possible and adjust that curve to make sure that we're not on the too warm a side and we're affecting south feed intake, but still keeping those piglets comfortable. So we're after that last south barrels, we're going to have a, a temperature curve, which reduces the overall temperature target uh, over time. And I'm assuming the piglets will tell us if they're comfortable. You know, a pig, if, if a producer is really watching their piglets and, and reading the pig, they're going to they're gonna know if we're too hot, too cold. What are some of those signs? Yeah, I mean, obviously, after the birthing process, you can definitely tell. It doesn't take too much experience to know what a, a piglet that's low in viability looks like. So, you know, a piglet that's too, too cold or too stressed and needs some extra heat under a heat lamp or or needs to have a, a renewed temperature curve in the farrowing house, where you're going to know by those pigs just shivering. They're going to be a lot of huddling on top of each other. And on the on the other side, if they're way too hot, they're going to be spread out quite a bit. So what we want these pigs to have a lay-in pattern that they're just touching each other, but not too far apart and, and definitely not piling on each other. As I mentioned in the intro, you do work with DNA Genetics Technical Services team as somebody that works with producers a lot. What would you say the biggest take-home message would be from this podcast in our in our discussion on South Farrowing Care? Yeah, the biggest take-home I want producers to understand is when we talk about South Farrowing Care and the sow and litter care within the farrowing house, a lot of this starts before in gestation. So we want to make sure that those sows are coming into the farrowing house in an ideal lean athletic body condition. And that really sets the stage for how much of uh, feed intake they can maximize or what their peak feed intake will be. Because a, a sow that comes in that's overconditioned is not going to have as much natural feed intake as one that comes in an ideal body condition. The second thing I hope that producers take away from this is, you know, we want to have a good temperature and, and we're all about having these pigs and, and, uh, set a temperature curve that they're going to have increase their viability and keep them warm because they really need some extra warmth and heat to keep them going. Um, from there on out, um, it's maximized feed and taking these sows because every pound of feed more that these sows can eat, it's just going to be generating milk for litter production, litter growth, or it's going to help with breed back after weaning. Very good. Thank you very much, Dr. Jason Schneider, Technical Services Consultant with DNA Genetics. This wraps up part five in our five-part series on DNA Genetics' five pillars of reproductive care. To learn about the rest of the pillars or for any past episodes, visit our website at dnaswinegenetics.com or follow us on social media. For Inside the Helix, I'm Curtis Harms. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Helix, presented by DNA Genetics. Inside the Helix is released every other Tuesday and is focused on what matters to the swine industry. 
To catch up on previous episodes, visit us online at dnaswinegenetics.com or find us at your favorite podcast streaming platforms. You can also keep up with DNA Genetics throughout the year by following us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. For Inside the Helix, I'm Curtis Harms. Thank you.